Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you today. I'm so thankful to be able to open God's Word uh, with you. Uh, Our church has prayed for you uh, over the years. I'm thankful for John and his ministry here. I'm very encouraged uh, that your church has been able to call Jeremy. Uh, He is serving at a church with my friend James Choi. Uh, I know it's a loss for them, but I'm excited for you. Uh, He's a faithful brother. I'm happy uh, for your church to be able to not only have one pastor, but now another pastor coming. Uh, So I'm grateful to be able to have them serve along alongside your lay elders. It's a privilege to open God's word with you, so I bring greetings from Christ Church, uh, but what I want to do is focus our attention in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. Uh, you will find the sermon much more enjoyable if you keep God's word open throughout the duration of the sermon. Our sister served us faithfully by reading uh, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to read a little bit more as I just kind of give you a little bit of lay of the land of what Peter's been doing here, and then that'll help us with the sermon. Peter's writing to a group of exiles, uh, people who are experiencing hardship and persecution and social alienation because of their faith in Jesus. Typically, when we think of persecution, we almost only or exclusively think of physical persecution. But that's not what is taking place here in 1 Peter. People have come to faith in Christ, and because of their belief in Christ, the world is seeing them as strange, strange and weird. And as a result of that, they're treating them in ways that are ostracizing them and alienating them from society. It's actually not dissimilar to the type of persecution that we might experience for believing in Jesus Christ, that people would think that we're awkward, that we believe in a resurrected dead man, that we believe that the resurrected dead man will actually come back in the sky one day and redeem all of his people. People think you're strange for believing things like this, and they find it hard to believe that you can hold down a stable job. That's the type of thing that's taking place here in 1 Peter. That people think that they're strange for believing these types of things. And so as a result of that, they're, they're having hardship. But Peter begins the letter not by just trying to encourage them, as we might think that someone would do in this moment. He begins at the beginning of this letter by reminding them of what God has done. In these very famous verses, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we call that a, a section well, you know, that's often rephrase, uh, phrased as indicatives. What God has done or promised to his people. So Peter reminds them of what God has done or promised, and then he comes into this section where he starts to tell them, this is what the community now that believes in what God has done or promised should be like. Our sister read it for us earlier, but the first bit of what he describes them as being like is a family. And then he gives us in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 2, two other metaphors. The church should be a family, but the church should also be a temple, a holy place. And the church should be a unique people, a chosen race. Let's read those verses now. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. Father, we ask that as we study it, that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Father, we ask as we study it that you might conform us into the image of Christ. Father, I pray for those who are here who are not yet Christians, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would be merciful to give them eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would cause them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And Father, for all who are Christians here, I pray that today they would be deeply encouraged by your word. As we were reminded earlier, you are the mighty friend of sinners. And we pray that you would drive us into deeper faith and deeper repentance as we rely on your Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want you to suppose for a moment that there's a special microphone that we're wired to pick up the sentences that we're playing just at or below the awareness level of all of your mental tapes as you were coming through the doors this morning. And if we were eavesdropping right now on what was playing in those mental tapes, I wonder what types of things that we would have heard. Oh no, there's Pastor John. If he sees me, he'll wonder why I haven't replied to any of his emails. I better quickly get inside. I wish my spouse weren't away this morning. It's really uncomfortable coming to church alone. Well, I'll sit in the back and I'll leave as soon as the service is over. I sure hope the preaching's better this week than it's been the past few weeks. This should be a really great day. There's no work that needs to be done. I like our church. The football game is on at 3 p.m. That gives me time to go out to lunch with friends and still be home for kickoff. I like being a Christian. I wonder if I should keep coming to this church. I really haven't made any deep friendships Well, I'll keep praying about it and see how it goes today. Look at that happy young family over there. It really hurts when I think about my family, how my kids are difficult or they're grown up and mixed up. I wish I could have a few of those precious years back, but I can't start crying now. Here comes one of the elders. If these people knew what I did last night or last week, they wouldn't welcome me into this building. With tapes like this, playing just at or below the awareness level as we enter into the building when we gather, the chances are very slim that any real love is going to be demonstrated when we spend our time together in corporate worship because we are so much more focused on ourselves than everybody else around us. As Peter shifts from a focus on the individual, what God has done for them or promised to them in Christ, He now shifts to focus on the community. And we see that that was just as true in the first century as it is in the 21st century. That people were so much more focused on themselves than everybody else around them as he urges these persecuted Christians to love one another. When we come to 1 Peter, it's a hopeful message because the gospel that has the power to save us is, the apostle Peter tells us, 
the ground for our mutual love and affection for one another. Peter tells us that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is hope for a loving church. And as he does, he gives us three reasons to love one another and three ways to love one another. It's actually a very simple outline. Reason one, two, and three. Way one, two, and three. Reason number one. Look with me again in verse 22 of chapter one. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. They've purified their souls by obeying the truth. Therefore, verse 22, they are to love one another. Peter grounds the command, love one another on their conversion, having purified your souls. How did they purify their souls? Verse 22, by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. If you go back and you start to reread the New Testament or spend time reading in what we call the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, you will see that the gospel is often referred to as the truth. Galatians chapter two, verse five. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians chapter two, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Colossians chapter one, verse five. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Peter says that this past action of conversion to faith in Christ, to the truth of the gospel, actually has ongoing consequences for them in the present, even though they are being slandered and misrepresented, and mistreated, and oppressed, and ostracized, and alienated for their faith in Christ. Peter tells us that the difficulties that these people face, the sins that other people have committed against them, the hardships that they are experiencing as Christians, the pain that they feel for living in the first century under this alienation does not exempt them from loving one another. It does not exempt them from doing spiritual good to other people in the Christian community any more than it exempts you or me. But isn't that often how we respond when we've been wronged? As if all of a sudden, because somebody has done something mean to us or harsh towards us or cruel towards us, we're no longer required to love other people and our response often seems justified in our minds, doesn't it? You see, Peter knows something about people. He knows that our default tendency is to turn inward on ourselves rather than to turn outwards towards other people in love, especially when we're suffering, particularly when we're hurting or going through trials. So he summons a suffering church to mainstream Christian life by calling them to love one another. And in so doing, Peter reveals to them the goal of their conversion is not their own personal happiness so that they feel good throughout life. He tells them that their goal in conversion is to have genuine love for others, just as Jesus told them to do. This is how you will know, they will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love. 
It's not a love for other people in general. You see, sometimes in the church, it's easy for us to think, well, I'm, I'm pretty loving. I love my neighbors. I love my colleagues. I love my coworkers. I love that guy who gives me free lunch every once in a while. I love my boss. I love my teachers. It's not a love for people in general. It's a love for fellow believers in particular, members of these churches that are scattered throughout what we would know as modern-day Turkey and Asia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and all of these different places, which is why he says, verse 22, brotherly love, Philadelphian. I'm from the Philadelphia area, a little bit like you guys are a suburb right outside of New York City. We're in a suburb right outside of Philadelphia, and it's the city of brotherly love. But when you go downtown, sometimes in some places in downtown Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love looks like anything except the city of brotherly love. And sometimes among some Christians in some churches, those churches look like anything except a community that is characterized by love. Peter knew firsthand that ugliness can occur among true and genuine believers. That that wasn't just a thing for the outside world. That in communities like this, faith families, where people covenant together to love one another, real sin occurs and people mistreat and speak against one another. And it grieved him to see it among these Christians. He looked into the church and he saw that there was something that was missing. And he concluded that the missing element in these churches was not a new preacher or more technology or more people in front of them or more revenue for their annual budget. When he looked in there, what he saw that was missing was genuine love among the believers for one another. So he commanded them to love one another. Believers, Peter teaches us, are to not simply be known for their endurance in exile or by their sound doctrine, as we should be. We should be known. We confessed the Apostles' Creed earlier. But he wants them to be known for their unwavering love for one another even while they suffer, especially when they suffer. And he tells them and us that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is hope for a loving church. That's reason number one. Reason number two. Look at verse 23. Love one another, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. They are to love one another because, verse 23, they have been born again. In verse 22, conversion is described as them purifying their lives by their obedience to the truth. Now in verse 23, conversion is described as God causing them to be born again. In verse 22, the command to love was grounded in their obedience to the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And when you obey that gospel, now you are to love. But now here in verse 23, the command to love is grounded in God's saving action. God has granted them new life. God has caused them to be born again. God has given them eyes to see. God has given them ears to hear. God has removed the heart of stone and inserted the heart of flesh so they are to love one another. They are to put off old life patterns and they are to put on new life patterns. They are to stop living like the way they, they used to live 
and they are now to live the way that God wants them to live. They are not to live like worldly people. They are to live like people who live for another world. Peter's reason is actually incredibly simple. They are to love one another because God has loved them. John says it like this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. If you want, you can turn there or you can just write the references down. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is the love of God. That the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then drop to verse 19 of 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Fellow members of this church, do you love one another? I'm not asking you if you've learned how to deal with each other's faces on Sunday morning. I'm asking you if you love one another. Do you love one another enough to pray for one another? Do you love one another enough to serve one another, even at great cost to yourself? Do you love one another enough to disagree with one another and still approach the Lord's table together? Do you love one another enough to forbear patiently with one another? And while you think that you are so generous and forbearing patiently with other people, have you ever stopped to consider that perhaps other people think that they're being very patient with you? Do you love one another enough to give up your rights for one another so that somebody else might have and you might not have? Do you love one another enough to be inconvenienced by one another? Do you love one another enough to regularly approach the Lord's table and show that the fellowship that you have with the believers of this church is more significant than your personal rights and privileges and people thinking that your life choices are the right ones. You see, Peter is not commanding us to tolerate one another. Peter's not telling us to learn how to put up with one another. Peter's not telling us to learn how to endure one another. Peter's not telling us to learn how to coexist with one another. That is the love of the world. Peter is calling us to something far deeper, so far greater, that transcends all of those other worldly loves that are fickle and pass. The apostle Peter is commanding these Christians, us, fellow members of the church, to love one another. And friends, love makes us vulnerable. You see, it's really hard to love other people because loving other people opens us up to pain. Anybody who's ever loved anybody in this room genuinely knows that to actually love them means that you have to open yourself up to be hurt by them. And the only way to protect ourselves from that type of pain is to not love anybody at all. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this. 
To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your love to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements of life. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Now, friend, perhaps you're here today and you find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another because you know that you've hurt someone so deeply in your life that you cannot even begin to imagine that they would forgive you to be loved by them. But this apostle, Peter, knew exactly what you feel like right now. Peter knew exactly what it was like to feel unforgivable, unlovable, irredeemable. He had betrayed the man who had called him to be his disciple. He had walked away from the one who had carefully trained him for ministry. He had given up on, in a moment of temptation, the one who told him that the moment would come. But by the Sea of Tiberias, this Peter, the apostle writing to these Christians, learned that he was forgiven by the very person that he had sinned so grievously against. And now here, this same Peter, forgiven, restored, loved, confidently calls these Christians to love one another because Peter knows that there is no sin that you can commit that will send you outside of the reach of God's love. The world wants you to think that it's possible for you to live in such a way that God would never forgive you, that God would not love you. In fact, you sometimes believe the lie to think that somehow my sin is unique. I've sinned in such a way that God would not forgive me. Not this time. I went too far. But friends, I want you to know that it is impossible for you to send yourself outside of the reach of God's love. In fact, Peter is here teaching us that it is possible to be forgiven of, restored from, loved after the most heinous, Christ-diminishing, family-destroying, church-disrupting sins. The Apostle Paul, a legalist, a murderer, a blasphemer said this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God saved Paul, God saved Peter, and friend, God will save you. He will save you if you repent of your sins, if you turn away from them, if you place your faith, that is all of your trust, all of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. If you trust in his substitutionary sacrifice, that Jesus doesn't just pacify God so that you get a free ride into heaven, that Jesus actually took your sins upon himself and he bore in a finite amount of time an infinite amount of wrath that you deserve when he substituted himself for you on the cross. And after bearing all of that judgment, he now pronounces upon you forgiveness and he gives you his righteousness so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sinner that you are. Friend, you might not think that you are a sinner, 
but you are a sinner through and through. And your sin should take you to the deepest, darkest corner of hell, even if you have lived the most moral life in this room. But Jesus Christ came to save you if you would turn to him in faith. Friends, if you want to turn to him in faith, you can do that right now here in the middle of a sermon. You can ask God to forgive you and he will cause you to be born again. He will give you new life. He will show you mercy and what you will know is joy and peace and hope. And if you have questions about that, find me after the service. I'll be standing wherever John tells me to stand. Or you can find John. Or you can find one of the elders here. They would love to open the Bible with you. What prevents you today from coming to Christ? Is it pride in your life that people here already think that you're a Christian? Friend, I can assure you that nothing would make the genuine Christians in this room happier than to know that you actually came to faith in Christ. Is it fear that somehow your sin would prevent God from forgiving you? Friends, throw that fear aside. Come to Christ. Is it that your sin has deceived you into thinking that the people here would treat you different if they knew the truth? Friends, if the people here treat you different when they know the truth, then go find a different church. But if they receive you, then this is the very type of place that you want to be. The church is a community of sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Jesus loves to forgive sinners so that they can walk in the forgiveness of sins. But perhaps you're here today And you find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another because you cannot fathom loving someone who has been so unlovely towards you. Someone has done something so grievous against you that you cannot even begin to imagine forgiving them. Friends, Jesus knew what you feel like. Scorned by his family, abandoned by his friends, betrayed by this disciple, failed by his government, mocked by his countrymen, and yet from the instrument of his torture, Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then on the evening of his resurrection, the very first thing that Jesus said to his disciples was this, peace be with you. Before he said, if you forgive the sins of any, Their sins are forgiven them. Before he sent them out into the world to baptize and make disciples, before he gave them his spirit so that they might walk in power, Jesus says a second time, peace be with you. Now I want you to take a moment and I want you to imagine with me what that must have been like for them. It is, in my opinion, one of the most astonishing teachings that we find in the Gospels. We have no record of Jesus chastising the disciples for the way that they lived. I told you that I was going to die and rise again. Why did you run away? We have no record of Jesus treating them as their sins deserved, you idiots. We have no record of Jesus reminding them of how foolish they were. Jesus simply forgave them before they ever asked for forgiveness. Without so much as mentioning their sins against him, Jesus forgives them and then empowers them to go forth with a message of forgiveness. You want to know why Peter can tell them to love one another and forgive one another? Because Peter knows what it's like to be forgiven and loved after he has sinned. Friends, so let me ask you, who are you withholding forgiveness from today? Can you fail to extend forgiveness to them when Jesus Christ has been sinned against more grievously than you and I could ever be sinned against? Unforgiveness is the acid that will destroy its own container. 
Love covers a multitude of sins. Husbands in the room, are you living in love with your wife? In the forgiveness of sins? Wives, are you living in loving forgiveness with your husbands? Parents to children or children to parents, are you living in forgiveness with one another? Singles, others in this church, are you living in forgiveness with other people here? Or are you harboring bitterness and anger, frustration against people that have done something against you that you find to be annoying or sinful? Love covers a multitude of sins. New birth is the reason, Peter tells us, that believers are to love one another because believers have been born again by means of, verse 23, the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God. The invincible, incorruptible seed by which we are born again is the gospel. It never loses its relevance. It's relevant in every age from the first century to the 21st century. It never changes. It is needed by every single person and all people everywhere are commanded to repent and to believe this gospel. The living word produces life. That is verse 22, abiding. It will never cease. And because of this gospel, you and I have hope of a loving church, which is why this is such a great teaching and so hopeful of a message. Reason number one, reason number two, reason number three. Look at verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, careful readers, or my grammarians in the room, notice that the word for is at the beginning of verse 24, which typically signifies cause, not reason. But because it is difficult to see how the Old Testament citation from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, grounds what preceded it, it makes better sense to see it as a restatement of the reason to love given in verse 23, which I believe makes it another reason. So the third reason to love then is that the word of God endures forever. Peter restates and reinforces that reason with a quotation from Isaiah 40 where comfort is proclaimed to Israel because God will once again work to restore them from exile in Babylon. See, the good news for you just like the good news for Israel and these elect exiles is, according to Peter, that God always keeps his promises. And the nations of the world that seem so strong cannot resist his promised word to deliver his people from exile. Such nations are like grass and the flower of grass, which perish when the winds of the Lord's providence blows upon them. You're all reasonable people. You see it every winter. Grass and flowers are beautiful. You spend your whole springtime cultivating them and putting them in your gardens. You love it, but when winter arrives, no one would know that you had done good in your yard. By quoting Isaiah 40, Peter is reminding these exiles that the persecutors of their day, who seem so invincible, are not. Their glory is short-lived, but their love for one another as a Christian community is of eternal significance. So he says, Verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. Friends, you want to change the world? You want to win the city for Christ? Cultivate a loving church. You want to change the community? Build a loving church. 
Isaiah supports Peter's reason in verse 23 by helping us see that the imperishable living and abiding word of the Lord has present relevance for how these believers conduct themselves in their exile. And Peter tells us, verse 25, that that relevant word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord in Isaiah, which represents the promise that God will restore his people from exile and fulfill his promise to Abraham, is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of God's love displayed in the person of Jesus Christ that is being proclaimed to all of these churches throughout Asia Minor and is now being proclaimed to you. The new exodus, the return from exile, the fulfillment of his promises, the command to love one another become a reality through the gospel. The good news for Zion and for Jerusalem and for Maranatha grace is that God will come and fulfill his promises to Israel. He has come and he will come again. Friends, you want to know why you're so discouraged often in your Christian life? You're not looking far enough down the road. You're looking at the circumstances right in front of you and the people who are challenging right in front of you. But your bright hope for tomorrow is down the road, and God has promised you something better than you will ever get in this life, better than anything you will ever earn by your job, better than anything you will ever receive. Do you want to know why you have a new Christmas list every year? Because it never satisfies. But God has promised you something that is greater, and it is coming. Peter tells these believers that the command is to be motivated by that gospel. It's not simply love. It's love because you have been so greatly loved and because you have a bright hope for tomorrow. It is a gospel that is from the abiding word of the Lord that tells them of their hope and promises them that there is ultimate deliverance. It is a gospel that has caused them to be born again. And it is a gospel from that abiding word of the Lord that motivates the way that they live together. Friends, you will only love your enemies. You will only love those who are unworthy of love. You will only love those who are hard to love when you are motivated by the gospel. Otherwise, you will turn away from them. Do you find yourself struggling to love other believers in this room or in your life? Consider the gospel, that God loved you while you were yet a sinner. He sent Christ to die for you when you were most unlovely. And it's that gospel that teaches us to love. God loved you and me and these other people enough to send his son to die for them. Who are you to withhold love from them? What if God loved you the way that you love others? What if God's love for you was as fickle as your love for others? What if God's love for you was as harsh as your love for others is? The gospel, the good news, is the message of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. It saves, and it is the ground of our mutual love, and because of it, there is hope for a loving church. Those are the three reasons. But how are we to do it? How are we to love? Peter knew that we would need help, so he gives us three ways to love one another, and they're all very easily and quickly found in verse 22, which is the anchor of the whole passage. Way number one, sincere love. Look again at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love, love one another 
A sincere love is a genuine love. It's an honest love. It's a love that is not only made evident in public gatherings or at the door when you're shaking everybody's hand and greeting them. It is a love that is made evident in private prayer or behind closed doors or when other people are not around. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is your love for other members of this church genuine? What would the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart reveal if we did a careful examination of them about the way that you speak about one another? What would it reveal if we knew what you thought of other people as they passed through the room? Would we see sincere, genuine, earnest, heartfelt love for fellow believers? Or would we say someone says, be well, brother, idiot. Love that is only showcased in public is not love. Today's my wife's birthday, and if I said, Babe, I love you so much after 15 and a half years of marriage. One day a year, I'm going to tell you I love you, and I'll be nice to you on that day. And I'll do it when we're in public in front of other people. That's not genuine love. Friends, let love among you be genuine. Sincere love, way number one. Way number two, brotherly love. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a brotherly love, love one another. Brotherly love is familial love, as we noted. But the hard part of familial love is that it requires us to love and gather and serve and care for others, even when, especially when, they've wronged us precisely because they're our family. Or as I like to tell the members of our church, when you have your annual family gathering or a family reunion, your crazy Uncle Larry still gets to come because he's in the family. Friends, a healthy family learns how to let love cover a multitude of sins because life together is far more important than your individual rights. Are you insisting on your rights, your privileges, your opportunities, your service, people agreeing with you so that you might live life the way that you want to live it? Friends, this is not the same as saying that you have to allow someone to abuse you or oppress you or manipulate you or coerce you. That's not love. It's always wrong. And if that's happening to you, your pastor, John, I know, would love to help you. Male or female, go to him if that's the type of relationship that you have with somebody else and receive the help and care of the church. But for everybody else, are you more concerned about getting what is yours than everybody else in your life? Sincere love, brotherly love. Way number three, earnest love. Look in verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. The earnest lover seeks to outdo others in showing love. Earnest love fervently displays love and affection regardless of how much love and affection is being reciprocated. Brothers and sisters, it is a poor lover indeed who waits for love to be initiated to reciprocate love. And that is exactly why some of you in this room are so worn out and tired. Everything you do, every word that you speak at home with your spouse, with your kids, the members of this church is to try to get people to love you. You do things because you desperately need to be loved and you want people to love you. But friends, that's not love. You can't make people love you the way that you want to be loved. You have to love them simply because you love them even if they do not rightly respond to the love that you show them. All of this, the Apostle Peter tells us, is to be done from a pure heart, verse 22. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, not for gain, not for attention, not for promotion, not for advancement, not for pleasure or accolades, but from a pure heart made holy by the gospel. One of the things that keeps us from loving is the fear that if we pay the price of love, somehow we'll be the people who lose out. But friends, Peter tells us that that is not the case. The power to overcome that fear is the gospel by which we are born again through the word of God. So four final applications for us. Number one, love defines how to act when facing conflict. Love, as we see displayed in the gospel, defines how we are to act when there is conflict in our lives and in the context of our church. We are to treat others the way that we want to be treated. We are to put others before ourselves. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are to love much because we have been loved much. Friends, does love characterize your actions when there's conflict? Second, love does not seek revenge for wrongs suffered. Never are you commanded to make sure people understand the consequence of how they have been unlovely. You are to love because you have been loved and you are to trust God to deal with the mess of life. Delayed justice is not injustice, but God has promised us that a day is coming when he will deal with all of the things that have been unjust in your life. And you are to trust that to him. Things that are happening now, things that will happen in our country, things that will happen in your church, you are to trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Third, love overcomes evil through prayer, patience, and kindness. Prayer, patience, and kindness. One of my former pastors used to say when people would come and want to talk about somebody who had been difficult in the church, he would always ask the person, have you prayed for that person for 30 days? Now, he's not just simply saying, hey, 30 days is a magic number and then I'll help you pastorally. He's saying, if you really care, then you will take it to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to help you. Fourth, love denies self for the good of others. Love denies self for the good of others. Peter is concerned about the social disruption that is taking place because of these sins. Notice it in the verses that our sister read for us in chapter two very quickly. He tells them about all of this gospel and then he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. That doesn't mean that some hypocrisy is okay and some envy is okay. All deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You gotta put these things off so that you can learn how to live together for the sake of the community. So I'm just gonna speak as one pastor to another church expecting their pastor. Some of you have a lot of expectations for the way Jeremy's gonna be when he's here. Some of you have a lot of ideas for the way for him to most effectively use your time and for him to use his time while he's here. But what you need to do as he comes in is to give up your rights, not so that you might finally have what you want, but so that the church might be blessed. You wanna help strengthen the church? Labor for the good of the church. Labor so that your pastors are set free to minister the word among you, your staff pastors and your lay elders, so that a loving church built by the gospel might proclaim the excellencies of that gospel to people around you 
who have souls that will never die and will perish in a Christless eternity. Love for God helps you love like that. When you're dealing with hidden hatred, when you're suspicious of others, when you're frustrated by what's taking place, when you're hiding sin and prohibiting the grace of God in your life by not confessing it to the Lord and confessing it to other people. Friends, I just want you to think what would happen if 10 believers, 10 Christians, gathered here today to deliberately choose to play a different type of tape when they walk through the doors on a Sunday. And they said something like this. I know that there are many people in our congregation who are burdened and hurting. I know that there are many people who are overwhelmed by life. To whom can I sit by today and speak encouraging words of eternal life so that they might be loved? Can you imagine how different this assembly would be if everybody entered the room like that? Let it be so among us. And because of the gospel, there's hope for a loving church like that. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now to believe what we have read and studied, that we would leave here encouraged, not discouraged. And Father, we ask, we pray that you would use this message of love to change people literally in their seats for the good of the church, the glory of Christ, the edification of your son's name. Amen.